So we'll start. We'll start with a um, start with a happy birthday to Sam and, and Carla and and Ann Christiana is responsible for this, not me. I, I think what we can say is that on average, Sam and Carla are 55 years old. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure who wins in that uh, in that mathematical assessment of your birthdays, but happy birthday! So. Keith is out of town today, and it's um, it's my pleasure to be able to introduce our grand round speaker this morning, um, Dr. Michelle Prince. Um, actually, I had embarrassingly the opportunity to meet her because we don't overlap all that much in pediatric orthopedics and neonatology, although we did just have a really very interesting case and. Um, and her topic of, uh, of early management of scoliosis is very pertinent to my field, although we don't usually do that much about it while they're in the nursery. So Dr. Prince um, most recently has the obligatory P orthopedics TDI master's degree. I think everyone in orthopedics is required to get their, their master's from TDI, and she recently completed that. Um, her training, she started out uh, sort of a local training in undergraduate at Smith and Bowdoin, and then uh, her medical school was at Loyola, and then she did her pediatric, uh, her, her, ortho, her orthopedics at Worcester, correct? And then uh, her pediatric orthopedics in Atlanta, Georgia. So she's been here for how long now? Almost two years. Almost two years. So it's really a poor statement of our communication that we we really uh, got to know each other for the first time when I'm introduce, introducing her for Grand Rounds. Um, but in any case, um, we're looking forward to uh, an important topic in pediatrics, which is the uh, management of early onset scoliosis. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, MHCDS keeps you busy. Sorry about that. Um, so let's see. Is this your actual birthday today? Both of you share the same birthday? Actually, March 10th, but we're both on the same day. It's been 10 years apart. <laughs> <laughs> Who can figure out? Who can figure out the average of 55? You have all the necessary information. Oh, yes. Easy. Sorry for the technical difficulties. If you uh, select a laptop and then center projector. Thank you. Ah, oh, voice from beyond. <laughs> All right, so yes, I am here to, well, to really give an overview of early onset scoliosis. Um, it would take, I don't know, days, weeks. So you'll notice I kind of narrow this down quickly within, within the substance of my grand rounds. I have no conflicts of interest today. 
And I want to recognize that a lot of the images I'm, I'm adding in this talk are from the um, Infantile Scoliosis Outreach Program website, from whom I got permission to use all the images. And they're out there in the public, so no one has been sort of de-identified, um, which is sort of untraditional. So the briefest of brief overall uh, sort of reminders to the world of scoliosis. We like to break things down, you know, in surgery and orthopedics uh, a lot. Um, and so there are lots of different types of early onset scoliosis in the broad sense. Uh, you can have neuromotor or neurogenic causes for scoliosis, congenital, which are sort of the earliest and easiest to pick up on initially, and idiopathic. And then, you know, our measurements are, uh, for scoliosis are largely radiographic. We use the Cobb angle on a radiograph, which is really just taking, it's a judgment call. What is the most tilted upper vertebrae of a curve? And what is the most tilted lower vertebrae of a curve? And we create an angle, and that's the Cobb angle. And that's how we separate into the categories of mild, moderate, and severe. So any, anything under 10 degrees is not technically scoliosis in my world. 10 to 25 is mild, 25 to 45, moderate, 45 or more severe. So we break it down even further, right? You can make a judgment based on age. Of scoliosis detected under age 4 is infantile. From age 4 to 10, juvenile, and 10 or greater adolescent um, scoliosis. So that is the traditional kind of, you know, working uh, vocabulary for how we separate different kinds of scoliosis, except now it's not. So now, um, over the past 10 years maybe, there's been a trend to, um, first of all, identify infantile and juvenile scoliosis as sort of one entity. There's a lot of crossover in how we treat them. Uh, a lot of us believe, actually, that when we pick up a scoliosis at age five, that it's probably been there for a while, and it's probably going to behave more like an infantile curve than, than a juvenile curve. And really, how does a juvenile curve behave more like an adolescent curve? So, so most of us are, are lumping some of these things together again um, as early onset or adolescent scoliosis. So here's where I narrow it down. You know, the neuromotor and congenital scoliosis cases um, are more challenging than idiopathic and um, have fewer sort of treatment options. And so I really wanted to focus on this, I wouldn't say development, maybe redevelopment of how do we treat infantile or early onset idiopathic scoliosis. And it is not common to have this, um, but it is not totally uncommon. And maybe uh, it's becoming more common because we're getting better at picking up on it. But the reported incidence is, you know, about 5% of all scoliosis cases, which is way less than 5% of all your patients. Most of them, this is the old teaching, most of them are not progressive. So when you find a really early scoliosis, it may stay the same for a very long time. Um, the, the ones that are not progressive are usually in the category of single mid-thoracic curve. And um, one of the ways that we judge, uh, you know, is this curve a concern or not, is to do another measurement called the rib vertebral angle difference. And it was Dr. Min Mehta who really sort of um, studied this initially and reported it. 
Um, and I'll get into what that is later. But, but the whole point of picking up on early onset scoliosis is uh, to recognize the secondary effects that the curve has on organ function, specifically respiratory function. A child's lungs, you probably all know this, are developing and, and building numbers of alveoli um, up until age eight, doing so very rapidly, and after that, not so much. So a curve in the early childhood has a huge effect, potentially, on, on lungs and respiratory function. Uh, so I'm going to go through this really quickly. The rib vertebral angle difference, how we do it, we identify the apical vertebral body, we draw a perpendicular to that, we take you know, a midpoint of the ribs surrounding that and draw a line, which creates an angle, and then we subtract the one angle from the other, and that gives us the difference, the RV angle difference. And so you do that on both sides of the the peak of the curved vertebral body, and you get this number. And typically, the, the number 20 or more is where we say, okay, this is kind of a big difference, um, and it could mean something. Um, and, and so, for example, on this x-ray, um, we measure the Cobb angle of this to be about, I think, 32 degrees. It's not projecting very well here. Um, we measure the rib vertebral angle difference on this one to be 24, I think. But then there's another example of a 32 degree curve, which looks very different to the eyeball, partly because of the chest wall asymmetry. And the rib vertebral angle difference on, on the further one is 40 something degrees. And so the prognosis for these two curves is very different. Um, and, and it's, you know, the rib vertebral angle uh, is what gives you that, not the Cobb angle. And what that is, what that rib vertebral angle difference really is, is, is our attempt at representing a three-dimensional problem two-dimensionally, right? So, so here's where I, you know, I've, like once this clicks in your mind, you, you suddenly become, I don't know, paranoid about scoliosis, but, but you understand, you know, why every curve is a little different. So, so yes, we measure the two-dimensional measurements on x-ray. But every curve has a rotation in it, by definition. And, and so, um, you know, the vertebral body shape, this is my little cute drawing like of, you know, vertebral body, central canal, transverse processes, spinous process. In early onset or any scoliosis, you get a bony deformity pretty quickly in response to the position of the spine. And so, that sort of rotation is what we're trying to pay attention to, both in diagnosis and treatment, and the vertebral angle measurement is how we can sort of hone in on that. And Dr. Mehta, who wrote a lot about this uh, early onset scoliosis, also paid attention to patient build. And she focuses highly on, you know, is this a sturdy patient or a really doughy, slender, kind of not strong patient? And the curve behaves differently in those kinds of patients, too. But here's where, you know, this is not news. I mean, like, this is not new at all. We have ancient drawings of fascinating curves, you know, out there, right down to the vertebral body uh, deformity. And, and, and we have, you know, pathologic sections that show it. You know, like, if we can avoid the permanent bony deformity, how amazing is that? Pretty amazing. So clinically, how do you pick up on this, right? Uh, rib hump. Now, some rib humps are really obvious. Some rib humps are cuter than others. And here we're looking at, you know, rib hump and waist asymmetry, a little waist crease in this little 
toddler is a sign that that is a real curve, not just a positional curve. Sub-rib humps aren't really rib humps, you know, so this patient has a rib hump, but also has a lumbar rib hump, so that's the transverse process uh, rotational deformity that you see on this child. And there are many patients who only have that, and sometimes the referral is bump on the back, right? Um, sometimes it's really hard to see, even though we know this is there, you know, that is easy to sort of you know, say, oh, you're fine, you're fine, we'll keep checking. Um, and, and in general, 90% of these curves don't progress, so that's okay to put those off. Um, but we may be missing an opportunity for early treatment in some cases. So use the rib hump or the lumbar hump as sort of a screening tool, but then we have other associated things that are commonly found too. And so a little pelvic tilt when sitting, a little uh, shoulder tilt, torticollis, you know, Yes, the vast majority of cases of torticollis are isolated, but if you have a patient with torticollis, just take a little extra time, you know, to look at the spine prone, sitting, you know, like in motion, I don't know, whatever you get in your visit, right? And, um, and, and, and so just, you know, for other things to maybe look a little more carefully for early scoliosis. So um, not just any old plagiocephaly, but severe plagiocephaly, you want to look for it. Chest wall asymmetry, whether it's sternal or uh, lateral chest wall asymmetry, or any patient that has hip dysplasia, you know, that's part of my first exam is flip them over and, and see if there's any other reason for the hip to be wanting to subluxate out. Is it associated with some kind of early curve? This is um, from the infantile ISOP website uh, and came from Dr. Mehta's efforts in the UK for developing a screening program for pediatricians. And so you can, there's like a nice two-pager. I think it's a little bit too basic for most people, but um, it's a it's an excellent teaching tool and a good reminder for the different kinds of examples of, of subtle sort of findings that can clue you into an underlying early scoliosis. So what are treatment options? Uh, when I finished residency, the only treatment option was limited fusion of the early progressive curve. And that was done in a really primitive way where we go in and beat up the spine in that area and put some rods and wires in and bone graft and get it to fuse. And then theoretically that stops the progression of that portion of the curve. Um, that is that is not so elegant, and so we are now uh, later. Actually, we kind of held on to what are some fusionless techniques, which we can also call growth techniques, but I like to call them fusionless, um, where we do maybe an, an implantation of some screws at the top and the bottom of the spine, do some overlapping rods that theoretically can slide on each other and grow as the child grows, um, or maybe put some wires on a rod and hope that they slide as the child grows. That doesn't always work out the way we want it to, and um, many times we have to go in there and lengthen, so repeat surgeries every six months sometimes are more the scenario. And there are lots of different uh, variations on a theme uh, for, for that surgery, and there is a place for that surgery in lots of cases, especially congenital or neuromotor scoliosis. The, you know, the sort of mm, newer, fancier technique that I never did in practice is VEPTOR, so vertical expansile prosthetic titanium rib. The indication technically for this is thoracic insufficiency, so rib fusions. 
um, were the reason this was invented. And what you get is a little uh, claw on two ribs that jack the ribs apart after you separate them surgically. And what we noticed is that can correct the associated curve a little bit. And so now um, many surgeons are using you know, a variation on that where you hook into the pelvis and the top rib and then jack the spine out farther to stretch it and adjust as the patient grows. And that can really help and, and guide growth a little bit. Uh, there have been some forays into um, sort of hemiepiphysiodesis of the spine, so partial growth arrest or holding of the convex part of the spine with a staple can decrease the curve um, immediately in, in terms of surgical treatment and can encourage the concave side to grow while you hold the convex side. This works better in juvenile early onset scoliosis than infantile just for sheer size reasons. Uh, there's bracing, and that is still a mainstay of treatment, and um, nicely young patients comply with a brace way better than pre-adolescent or adolescent patients, but it's tough to get the brace on perfectly every time, and then, you know, some days are better than others, but it is certainly um, absolutely a mainstay of treatment for me and for most spine surgeons uh, who treat children. Then there's casting. And so this is, uh, you know, like, I wish it was new, but it's not. This is ancient art, right? And so uh, this was popularized by many people at the same time because, I don't know, Plaster of Paris was invented, right? And we figured out uh, how to use it in every way, shape, and form. But um, uh, in the U.S., Risser casting is what we um, first used in the 20s and 30s. In Europe, it was... Um, uh, Cottrell and Morel, who sort of popularized casting, and they had a little different sort of way of realigning the spine than, than a Risser um, technique. And uh, Dr. Min Meta, who would be Miss Meta in the UK, uh, has herself some severe scoliosis and was very interested in the natural history of scoliosis and in, um, you know, how patients had done years ago with casting uh, versus how they're doing now. And she recognized that the patients that got casted early on had not such a bad outcome compared to, I don't know, Harrington rods, you know, for um, fusion for adult scoliosis. So she is the one that I credit with bringing this back, and, um, and she's the one I learned hands-on from. Uh, and it, it was maybe 2008 when I had learned it, and it was really in the U.S. only for about three years. But she was doing it in U.K. and Australia uh, for a decade or so before that. Um, and so what it is, the principles are to harness the growth potential of the very young child. And so we all know kids grow, like, amazingly, well, first in the womb, that's the biggest growth spurt, right? Zero, like, zero cells to a whole person. But then in the first two years of life, you, you know, you double your size and lungs and, and abilities. And so this is the time that if we can guide growth, it works the best and the fastest. So begin immediately. If we can predict the curves that are going to progress or we see a curve has progressed, start. Just start casting. Um, you change the cast frequently, and the younger the patient is, the more frequently you have to change it. Um, <coughs> So I should say, uh, although some people recommend starting casting age six months, I am not happy to do that because of what we know about anesthetic effects on the very young child. And so many times I will wait 
a little bit. And the earliest I've started is 10 months, and maybe I just have to be more brave, but I've had great outcomes. So, so, so I like to push it a little further. And I also avoid, um, I don't know, half dozen cast changes if I'm not casting in the six to 10 month range. Anyway, so you change the casts um, when you need to, when they get too tight. And so for younger patients, it's every two months or so. For a little bit older patient, maybe you get three or four months out of a cast. Um, you keep doing that until uh, the curve is gone or until you are not allowed to do it anymore by the parents and family. And so um, it could be months or it could be years. And, I, and my most dedicated families, the one parent who brought me to meet Ms. Mehta, um, did, we did casting for five years and then switched over to a brace because it's just too hot in Texas to do that cast forever. And really, in first grade, do you want to be in a cast? Anyway, so um, in Texas, I would break. I would have to take a break for these kids for three months um, and use a brace, and then we would resume casting again. And so uh, my first casting up here will be this Friday. I don't know if we'll take any breaks. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Um, and then, so when you're done casting, typically the patient does need a brace to maintain correction, although I've had some where the curve was so small, like zero, there was no need for a brace, and they did fine. But most of the patients will go through some bracing until um, they're up to their pre-adolescent growth spurt, and if they need surgery, we can do it and be, and be sure that they've had most of their thoracic growth already. 80% of your thoracic growth is done at age 10 for girls. So... How do we do this exactly, right? I think that cast is not easy to put on. Uh, this is the beautiful proper frame that is uh, written about in lots of articles, and I don't have that. Anyway, uh, we do it under anesthesia. Uh, we apply, it's an EDF, so elongation, um, derotation, and flexion are the sort of maneuvers that we're doing during the casting. And so we put the patient into cervical and pelvic traction which means I have someone holding the head and someone holding some straps on the pelvis. And um, we create a plaster base, because plaster is the most moldable material that we have in, in our armamentarium. And then, because that is uh, weak in terms of longevity and uh, resisting water, we then coat some fiberglass over it. But that's not the case. The whole case is actually trimming. Anyway, well, you'll see. So I have a little video, uh, but this is what the cast looks like off. It is nasty and with a lint and dirt down the middle. Uh, but it's actually pretty lightweight, and this one weighed under one pound. Um, the parents swear it's more than that, but, um, uh, but it's awkward, right? So we have to have a good, good firm pelvic base. We do this fancy cutout in the front to avoid um, rib deformity. So when we squish someone in a cast, their ribs will flare out in the front. And so the little wings in the front are to avoid that permanent rib flaring. And yet we want to give as much room as we can for uh, lung and abdominal expansion. And then the back cutout is theoretically to allow rib rotation. So the concave side of the curve, the ribs are kind of sunken. We, we cut that out and hope that the ribs can poke out into that window. I have gotten a lot more aggressive at cutting out the back of this window because that tiny window really, does the ribs go into it? I don't know. But that is the, that's my first cast that I made with Dr. Mehta. It has a paper lining and some other things that we just don't do in this country. It has the over-the-shoulder straps, which is the cast that she recommends. And yet, um, uh, you can cast a lower, lower thoracic and lumbar curve without the straps. So you see a lot of examples without the shoulder straps. 
But the shoulder straps work great for torticollis too. So in very, very young children, I will start the first one or two casts with over the shoulder. So here is, I think this is three times speed of how we do it. These, ca these cases take over an hour. I mean, part of this one was teaching, right? So here's the curve, here's how you do the derotation. Practice on the stretcher first, and then transfer over to the amazing frame that I'll never have, uh, you know, like, unless there's a grant out there for it. Um, and, then, and then there's a mirror underneath the frame, so, we can, so we're looking at the mirror and talking about the curve there. Like, I do a very aggressive squish of the chest, and the anesthesiologist didn't like that, so back off a little. And then it's cotton, you know, so paper and then cotton wrapping, and, um, and we put a little bump in the front to mark where our flare is going to be for the, for the wings in the front. And uh, someone is at the bottom of the contraption here pulling on some pelvic waist straps that we cut out at the very end and slip out from under the cast. Uh, the head is covered to, because you'll see, soon see my arms getting coated in plaster all the way, like my whole face is coated. And so we don't want that for the patient, for their eyes and their face and ears. We cover their head with stuck in it. And, um, and, and so then the plaster goes on and it goes on um, cold. So it takes a long time to dry. So we get a chance to adjust and manipulate and form while the plaster is hardening. Um, the, we add, you know, like the arm straps are so hard, so we add over the shoulder and mess with that a lot in this video. And then I think I get my hand slapped once or twice with not doing it right, you know. And so, the, well, I probably do that to residents now, I don't know, but that's how a good teacher is. And so then the color, you know, just for strength actually, and I am so tired of pink. But anyway, yeah, that's the most popular color for girls. And, which is funny because after we're done trimming and cutting out, you don't see much of the color of the cast, to be honest. The color is all in the tape at the end. Um, and so, yeah, I could watch this for days, but you guys are probably tired of it already. Yeah, but uh, taking off the frame and putting on the frame are the most tricky parts of the case because the patient is in midair with a you know an ET tube in place. And, and, um, and to be honest, um, Whenever I get my x-rays in the OR, by the time I've done the, the full manipulation and casting, the E2 tube is no doubt down the right main stem. And I, and I, and I get a, an emergency call from the radiologist, you know, like, your tube is malpositioned. But we're well done by then. But, but at the moment of manipulation, I do think we see and hear some beeping at the top of the table that we just go, OK, we're almost done. <laughs> you know, the whole point is to get a good correction and to back off. Um, uh, it would be, you know kind of heartless, you know, like to do all that for nothing. Anyway, so, so then I do edit this because the trimming goes on and on and on. But this is fancy footwork, and, and my cast tech teacher is way faster than I am at doing this. But you have to, you know, not, uh, not sort of um, break the cast is what happened on one of the flares. Don't burn the patient, right? Uh, get that thing just the right size, and, and then we flip her over and, and continue on the back. And so, so really it's about a half an hour of the casting and a half an hour of the trimming and then taping and making the edges look nice and all that kind of thing. Uh, so this is, you know, like on the one hand, truly amazing what we can do with this. And then on the other hand, you know, like really basic stuff that, um, you know, I never learned in residency because people weren't doing it. And in fact, a lot of us don't learn casting residency unless we're interested in going into pediatrics. And so this was kind of a lost art that is, uh, that thankfully has had a nice uh, surge in, in, in our practice recently. 
So I just want to go through, uh, you know, my best case. Why not? You know, I have lots of cases that that didn't, um, you know, like we gave up casting because it wasn't working and it was too much of a burden. Uh, but this patient, RB, started out, I think I should have in the beginning, the 32-degree um, the curve with a 25-degree rib vertebral angle difference. So we decided on early casting, I think at about age one-ish is when we did the first cast. And whether you can see that or not, amazing, perfect correction. Uh, the, you know, like cast after cast, great correction, cast after cast. And, and at the end of one year, with just six casts, we had, you know, uh, from 32 to six degrees. And um, the, even the rib vertebral angle difference changed uh, to the point where you can see the chest has much better symmetry. Um, so from start to finish with casting, just one year. And, and that is the power of growth right there. And so have we prevented permanent deformity? I think so. I think so. Now, this curve may misbehave. And I think I did brace that child for as long until I left that practice. And, and the pre-adolescent growth spurt could be some trouble. And I always give that exit interview to those patients. You know, that could be something that wants to curve again. And, and we have an app for that, basically, right? We don't cast again. But then we talk about bracing and, and other surgical options if it becomes severe. But maybe we prevent it from becoming severe. So uh, to sum up, you know, first of all, we want to treat the, all the curves that we can, the ones that we need to treat, so first identify them, right, um, as early as possible. And like once you recognize this is early onset scoliosis that is going to or is progressing, start treatment. And so picking up on it is really picking up on the rib asymmetry or the rib hump or the back bump. Um, for For... You know, I'm a believer, so I believe that the casting um, is a cure in some cases. And if it's not a cure, it's at least a time buyer in every case. So I will cast congenital curves. I will cast neurologic curves, knowing that, you know, like we're leaving the natural spine and, and not going into surgery and creating scar tissue and, uh, and, you know, I mean, transfer infection and all sorts of things. And you, so you burn no bridges with casting. And the side effects are very few. The two complications I had were pneumonia, which who knows, that was a community-acquired pneumonia. And to me, the complication was in my, to my casting. The patient, you know, got treated for the pneumonia. We took the cast off for two months, and then we restarted casting. So all it did was sort of stall out my treatment, and she did fine. And the other problem I got was some uh, pretty bad skin ulceration in a patient who had a... a tumor, you know, so it um, had a neurogenic uh, scoliosis and some numbness on one side of his ribs, um, and so it couldn't tell us when the cast was bothering him. We got a pretty bad ulcer there, and so we had to stop. And that's it. I have, knock on wood, never had an aesthetic complication yet. I used to neuromonitor my patients when I was doing the reduction of their spine in the OR, but the signals changed so much that, um, like, what do you do? By the end of the, by the time the cast was cured, the signals were normal again, and there's no reported neurologic um, injury to patients who get this casting, so I've stopped monitoring them. Um, and and so for you know and so for buying time actually the most recent papers are all about you know casting to to as a as a delay tactic for surgery. And so this is not my patient, but this is on the ISOP website. It is just fascinating to me how how powerful this is. And so please do keep it in mind and um, and let me have any of your questions.
this, this is fascinating. I, I have to ask, since you don't have the proper frame, yeah. do you have a Ruth, some yeah. Ruth Goldberg arrangement? I do, yeah. Um, so the, the black and white photo of Risser casting, that is the original Risser table. Uh, which was, um, you know, two sawhorses with a wood frame, and that morphed into metal sawhorses with a metal frame and a ratcheting system on it. So we have that in what's called the penthouse here. Don't let the name deceive you. It is a dusty old storage bin, and and it's what I had at my old hospital. The Risser frame was for adults, and um, I think for some nostalgic reasons, people don't want to throw it away, and so they exist in all these hospitals, and you can um, modify it from Home Depot, uh, to, to fit children. And now uh, my colleagues who have the proper frame think I'm crazy, but but I've gotten great results with just modifying that. And now recently a couple papers show you how to build a frame modification out of traction bed equipment, which is also something nobody uses anymore, which exists in the storage closets. So, so using a fancy OR table and some traction, we can make the frame. But I've used the research, so I'll just do that on Friday. And yes, I went to Home Depot yesterday, and we're ready. We're ready. But, I mean, I, I, it's funny because the, the, the frame itself, uh, when last I checked, was about $15,000. The shipping is another 5000 And so it is, in my mind, not the biggest deal compared to, I don't know, a robot. But, um, but it's been hard because, I, because the reimbursement for these cases is nothing. Um, and so it's a, t it's, a, it's a cost to the institution or the private practitioner who's doing it. You have to really believe in what it does, and you don't get a lot of support otherwise. Well, that's another commentary about our payment system. Mm -hmm. That's something that's preventive and yeah. relatively non-invasive. You don't get reimbursed for where if you did the Harrington rods or... You or get a lot, surgery, yeah. You get a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Michelle, I get a lot of adolescents who are very narrow their growth spurred and we're worried that scoliosis is going to progress during that time. Does anyone use that approach around the adolescent growth spurt to uh, I have. So so not casting, right? An adolescent won't put up with a cast. But the cast is the ultimate brace. And so I we all, I am a brace believer. Now that's not a shock, right? Because because I believe in higher harnessing the power of growth. Um, I have, I've had a little bit of trouble getting a really good brace in this region, so I recognize I had a great orthotist where I was before, and um, because reimbursement for custom bracing is not easy or present or great, uh, there's not a lot of really great bracers, and especially not in this region. But yes, um, especially when I hear that one of my patients who has a known curve is going up on their growth hormone, starting a growth hormone, I just say, okay, we're gonna brace you, because here's a really rapid growth phase that I can use, you know? They don't like that, but uh, it can work. And so, yeah, yeah, you can do that. Because we also have capability to induce the growth spurt. I uh, know. So tell me when you're going to do it, because I'll, I'll, I'll harness that. Well, and, and to shrink the time of the growth spurt, too. So I think the yeah. ideal time to cast during that. Or, or brace. But, but, but yeah. Me, yeah. Yeah, to brace it during is. that period and limit the I agree, and maybe I should be then also asking you, you know, like, here I've started a brace, can we speed up the growth, and, right? And who would argue with that if, they're doing, if you're doing it anyway? Yeah. So um, I'm assuming there are no randomized controlled trials of these interventions because it's very difficult in surgery. Not yet, right. But I was wondering whether you could um, do a pseudo 
um, trial methodology of people who accept versus people who reject it and then get hmm. outcomes. I'm, I'm sure that yeah. there are a substantial number of people who don't accept it. Well, and what's tough is they don't even seek it out. Hmm. But but more than that, there's so much bias in who's providing this, right? So if you see ex-pediatric orthopedic surgeon, they either have this in their armamentarium or they don't. And if they happen to have one of the other fusion-less techniques, that is what's offered. And, and so for me in Texas, people came from all over the country and the world because I was on the website, right, as someone who did this, and they sought me out. And so there's going to be some bias in, in, in that way, no matter what, um, and then surgeon bias, right? And, and so I was doing both techniques, growth or fusionless surgery and casting, and, and, and I would pick the patients, you know, who were more appropriate for whichever. Yeah, but that's going to be tough to work out really well. Is there a way to predict progression other than serial x-rays? Um, so, oh, yes, so you know, like as best we can with the rib vertebral angle difference. And so we track progression with the Cobb angle measurement, right, which is what the radiologist will give and what the surgeon will give separately because we don't use their measurements. Um, and, but, but the rib vertebral angle difference is how I can predict, okay, you're going to be the one in 10 that has likely a progressive curve. And we use that to start early treatment, even if the curve is not even moderate, right? So I will cast a mild curve if the angle difference is quite a bit. So that's the only thing we have so far. There's no genetic testing or anything else. Um, Dr. Mehta uses uh, body morphology to also predict. So the doughy, sort of light-skinned, um, stretchy or red-headed, you know, like she has lots of different reasons to start casting, even if the rib angle difference is not much. Um, but again, someone's usually come to her, is probably expecting casting, so she has some success in getting those people to comply and agree. Well, thanks for that uh, great talk. I'm amazed how much goes into casting. These couple of examples you showed, the x-rays, just the success, the mess case, and yeah. this here. Uh, I'm presuming these are idiopathic. Yes, cases. exactly right. What is the expectation for when this, these children are 5 or 10 or 15? Since it's idiopathic, mm -hmm. does it come back? Does whatever the process was, does it... Yes. So, so it does. In fact, most of the time, when when uh, when we're tracking, you know, post casting, we are deciding to brace or not. We follow closely. So, twice a year, an X-ray. It's a lot of X-ray. In fact, I stopped X-raying after every cast because because what you know, like, I just got used to clinically judging a curve. You know, you can, you can see a difference when you're used to seeing a difference. Um, and so the vast majority of patients have a progression of their curve uh, by the time they hit pre-adolescence or adolescence. Um, of those, 25% will go on to become severe. And so it's a pretty high percentage that then theoretically need some more treatment like a fusion, a you know, spinal correction infusion. What's the current understanding of the etiology of the idiopathic? I know it's called idiopathic, but what is it? Yeah. 
Um, so the theories are so broad, right? Like, it depends on who you ask. So yes, there is a genetic component. Most of us wouldn't argue with that. It tends to be more common in girls for adolescent idiopathic. It runs in families. We have a genetic test for a very specific subset of two genetic markers, you know, for girls of Caucasian um, origin during this age group, we can use a genetic test to help predict if their curve is going to progress. So, so we know there's a genetic component. Some theories are uh, that there's a vestibular component. So, you know, there's some kind of cochlear, um, you know, and so some treatment is based on working on balance and throwing kids into lots of spinning devices and standing on one foot. Um, there is a theory that um, that it's all growth modulated, growth plate, um, and probably genetic uh, modulation of growth plate development is somehow different. We haven't really gotten to that, but that's where a huge line of study is. Um, uh, I mean, there are theories about um, you know like that every idiopathic case just has some neuromotor component that we haven't identified. You know, there's some people that believe that. Um, so, so it's all over the map. But, but, you know, like the orthopedic, pediatric orthopedic surgeon will really hold on to that idiopathic diagnosis just so we don't have to talk about all the what-ifs, you know? Like, and, and, and say that, yeah, because there's a, a probably a genetic component, then I'll bring your siblings in too. You know, that's how I go about it. There's an animal model for that with, um, you know, sacrificing and serial sectioning growth plates to see what the change of size of the growth plate is. And, and, and we know it does change in untreated scoliosis. The growth plate on the convex size will get smaller and smaller and smaller and kind of peter out. So the growth plate is cartilage. Thickness can be measured. Um, of course, in, you know, like living specimen, we only have the x-ray to infer how is that growth plate behaving. So, for example, in congenital scoliosis, um, we can image with the CT very eloquently the three-dimensional parts of the, of the scoliosis, and we can image with MRI where we see physis and growth plate and where we don't. And we can predict, okay, this hemivertebral triangular-shaped thing has one growth plate on the bottom, none on the top. It will behave like this versus a growth plate on the bottom and a growth plate on the top. That'll be more progressive. So, so we can see on MRI sometimes what the growth potential is in the congenital setting. But in, in idiopathic, the growth plates are there, all there, right? And so theoretically, they should behave normally. But then they don't, and so we don't know why. Thank you. That was a great um, grand rounds. I have one comment and then one question, and the comment is directed actually to the learners in the back of the room based on a sidebar conversation we were having here before you started, which is that you have to make a patient naked in yeah. order to find idiopathic infantile scoliosis. That's so true. During your well-child visits, you need to get the kid undressed and do a thousand exams so that you can find this rare case of idiopathic and, you know, that is such an unfortunate development in modern time that in my world, it's in the ED. You, what, you didn't take the shirt off? Like, how do you even know what, come on, you know? So, yes, right. And, and but, but culturally, um, at a certain age, that becomes harder and harder, right? Yeah. At least for the infant, you can totally, you can totally do it. You get away with it every time. The question I have for you is, do you have any predictive 
model about who's going to be successful with testing? Is it the kids with mild to moderate? Is the kids with moderate to severe? So do you have any predictive model for, you know, we're going to do this cast, and I predict that you are going to be the type of patient that's going to be well with it? Um, so the only solid predictions we can make are if you have idiopathic scoliosis, and so I'm casting for lots of reasons, knowing that it really only works like this in idiopathic scoliosis. So, so by the way, there's a lot of ruling out, right? So early onset scoliosis demands that I do an MRI, which then again is anesthesia before age one, and so that one I'm willing to do. Uh, and, and more often than not, I find something, whether it's a syrinx or a tethered cord. And so then we have the patient, you know, get untethered weather, and then we start casting, which is my case this Friday. Um, but so, so the ones that are truly idiopathic, we've found nothing else on exam, on imaging, you know, and uh, are mild and are under one year, we can say this is the success we can expect. And beyond that, it is who knows. But if you define success as the curve didn't progress or the curve got a little bit smaller, then, then pretty much the success is nearly 100%, as long as you don't have another complication of skin problems or respiratory issues. Um, I, most of the time, the parents fire me eventually. Like, they're just tired of the casting. And so maybe I wanted to go a little further to get that, you know, less than 10 degree curve. But still, we had success in decreasing the curve and, and moving on to bracing. Yeah, I came from working 14 years in the School of Health as a nurse. And then in Massachusetts, the Department of Public Health required that we do annual uh, scoliosis screening on grades 5 to 8. What's the criteria in the state of New Hampshire um, in schools for doing Ooh. scoliosis screening? I don't know that yet. And, uh, and, um, there is no requirement. Yeah, and that's interesting. I think the evidence has shown that, correct me if I'm wrong, that depends, but the evidence for adolescent screening is that we have so many false positives. Yeah that it was not an effective screening tool. What not to say that as a resident, you, yeah. know, you need to yeah. get the patient undressed and look yeah. at their right, right. So, so it is true that um, the screening resulted in a lot of referrals that then needed no other treatment. And so my stance on screening is very diplomatic because the schools that are doing it, I'm fine with that, and the schools that aren't doing it, I'm fine with that as long as they're seeing somebody on a regular basis for well checks. Right? So if you're in a region where access is a problem, it, school screening may have a very real role. And, and I have definitely gotten some cases from school screening in Texas that just somehow never, never saw primary care for so long, you know? So yeah, um, it does create some false positives. I'm okay with that, but because it's easy, you're like, you're fine, but you're like, ooh, cured, you know, no problem. Well, <laughs> out of the, let's say, over 14 years, if you see three to 400 kids, so that's dealing with four to 5,000 kids over the course of 14 years. You send out 25 screenings. Predominantly what I saw was mostly girls yeah. in the ethnic area, not to put it in the ethnic area, but that's what I found without doing studies. You might get back maybe five follow-ups, and you would probably see out of those five follow-ups, out of the 25 referrals that you sent out, those five would come back positive. So, you know, compliance was the problem, but that's yeah. what I saw. I could yeah. see that over the course of 14 years, and that's what I found. Um, you know, if, if you do it in the doctor's office, you do it in the schools, if you catch it between the two, then you've caught that one kid. 
And see, and of course, I like that idea. And the earlier, the better, right? So, so I am not totally against screening, even though it's not officially. It is true that it's not necessarily recommended. It's interesting. I, uh, I say this from the point of view of having watched kids in spina bifida programs that ran for a number of years here uh, go through some horrendous procedures, and it reminds me of how critical that the biopathophysiology of a situation is, because if you don't know where you're going, you don't know how to get there, and the worst part about it is you don't know when you're lost. Hmm. And my hunch is that watching some of the medieval structures that you guys use that we're sort of lost here. Yeah. That, that we need to understand better what's going on so we can apply the principles in a, in a, in a light of touch. And, and, and what you mentioned about yeah. progression, after you do this, later progression suggests that we just temporize the situation. Uh, yeah. But sometimes we cure it. Sometimes it doesn't progress. And so... So, for example, am I uh, over-treating by casting, right? And it is not benign to go under anesthesia over and over and over. Um, I mean, I think, I think not, but, but there may be some people who are throwing a cast on when really that curve would have gotten better on its own. Maybe the RVAD wasn't so big. Uh, but for me, you know, I am fine observing a mild curve with a symmetrical chest and sometimes that curve goes away, and so, so, so it is important to recognize that it is possible to overtreat with this too. Oh, but spina bifida, forget it. You know, like that is one contraindication for any casting, right? Those, those patients are the most challenging in every way. Last, last question, Tori. Yeah, I was just wondering by the young infants and the mild scoliosis, and all the uh, positioning has anything to do with it. Since especially the cultural differences, yeah. carrying the baby in front yeah. all the time or putting them in the car seat all the time. So without... Oh, well, I'll just open this can of worms. I'll go for it. There, so Dr. Mehta, again, has some pretty amazing theories. And, and she does believe that positioning has almost everything to do with truly idiopathic scoliosis. She will not allow her patients to sit on one leg. Uh, um, or, or if you're going to do that, you have to do the opposite leg to send the curve the other way. Uh, she has seen a trend that in uh, Europe, uh, babies were set on their backs to sleep um, way before we did, and their rate of infantile scoliosis was much higher, and so she thinks that there's some gravitational effect on the spine, that sleeping on your back does that. I don't know, and, and it's going to be very hard to prove those theories. Well, I think that because they develop tragicephaly, and if Maybe. tragicephaly is one-sided all the time, mm -hmm. then they actually get stuck in that yeah. position for about six to ten months. Maybe. That's where they sit. Yeah. Maybe, but that is a can of worms. And so, you know, like most of the time it's fine and, and the scoliosis does not develop. Um, and so we have to hold on to that, you know, optimism. Thank you for a very yeah. talkative. Yeah. That was fascinating. Thanks. I find it fascinating. Yeah. Yeah.